This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Nothing, but nothing, interrupts the daily quests that preoccupy the precious patrons and harried staff of New York City's Upper East Side shop, Spanking Buttons. That is, until the blonde mace attack precipitates a collision and a disappearance. In this lively, amusing, and imaginative story, author Robin Luce Martin weaves a beguiling tale of colorful characters and unexpected events. Robin Luce Martin's recent credits include the co-authored play On the Street Where We Live and the novel Lizard Maid. She is the co-founder of Hashtag yeah you Write, a monthly author series in New York City. This is a work of fiction. Through the Hole, written by Robin Luce Martin, read by A.J. Ferraro. Button Times I never knew who would walk in that front door, or how I'd make it through another day. Yet, years went by. I dreamt of buttons, buried in a landslide, buttoned up. Each morning I stepped through the door of spanking buttons, and paused for a moment, stunned by the beauty. I felt radiant in its glow, unique and charmed safe in its empty serenity. I believed beauty could make a difference. The shop was shaped like an antique train car and lined with walls of buttons from floor to ceiling. I inhaled the magic of its miniature wonders, the bone and horn, rubber and cut steel, wedgwood, copper, brass, filigree and abalone, fabric and lucite, Mandarin silk knots, vintage celluloid, bauxite and marcasite, vegetable ivory and coconut shell, glass, gourd, leather and conch, sterling silver and oyster pearl, horsehair, French enamel, and Sheffield plate. As I walked through the store to its rear end, which was separated by an antique showcase filled with precious treasures and a table desk. I ran my hand along the wall of glassed box frames, sighing over the porcelain hand-painted Alice in Wonderland buttons. I'd go through the story of my life as I looked into the eyes of Alice, staring out from the button. I'd tear myself away by stepping a few feet to the other side of the room, where stacks of cardboard boxes filled the shelves that lined the wall, displaying buttons on the short ends of their lids. 
I looked for the boxes I had created, making the holes with my favorite antique awl. The most fun was stabbing into the cardboard to make a perfect hole in one plunge, and then push a button shank through and secure it with a bit of pipe cleaner. I perused the glitzy section, faux diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, giant pearls, gold X's and silver crosses. I loved the Bakelite, its elegance and nostalgic colors. I worshipped the retro plastic powder blue saxophones and black glass drums. I turned away from the children's buttons, but never fast enough, always setting off my biological alarm clock, and I'd need to take a deep breath. I'd skirt through the small opening between the desk and the wall and glance up at the framed 1789 George Washington inaugural button, hand-stamped. I lifted the desktop to see if there was any money and continued past Ivan's latest caricatures taped to the wall, laughing aloud at the one of myself wearing an artist's beret and sucking my thumb. To accentuate Layla's diminishing weight, she usually appeared as a clothespin, but she was a mere exclamation point in the new drawing. I worried that this observation would unhinge Layla, so I ripped it up. Daisy, his favorite subject, had numerous pains devoted to her wardrobe and mental state. In the first, she was drawn wearing baby clothes, a short, short dress with puffed sleeves, ruffled bloomers sticking out, and a giant bow under her chin. She carried a book titled The Ultimate Guide for Crybabies and a giant rattle. Since Daisy was an actress, Ivan always gave her a crown to indicate her drama queen antics. Adam, a.k.a. Buck, was naked with his camera hung fig-like, covering his parts. Grajana was snapping a bullwhip in the air, dressed as a dominatrix. In the corner, Abby brandished her fingernails and her eyes popped out of her head on spiral coils. Taylor, the playwright, was always drawn in the thinker position. Only his accessories would change from drawing to drawing. I went outside and sat in the garden. Summer, winter, fall, and spring. Six days a week. Six years counting. I drank my third coffee in blessed sips, welcoming its effects on my sleep-deprived body. I felt currents of unease shooting around my heart, but they made me feel alive. I looked at the no-smoking sign and lit up, knowing the smell would persist. I took pleasure in denying Grajana's accusations. I'd mentally prepare myself for my colleague's arrival and the onslaught of button-hunting to commence. Facing the building abutting the garden, I'd stare at the ivy creeping its way up to the roof of its thirteen stories. I'd ponder the meaning of my existence. I was forever reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, intoxicated by the horrible fate of its heroine, Lily Bart. I drew parallels between her life and mine, between the men who disappointed her and those in my life, between her fallen status and my own. I tell myself to calm down, to think positively. That day I wondered if the American royal, a Kennedy, would return. 
I'd been on the floor during his visit and helped him with horn buttons. I knew he'd been accused of the worst, but found him kind and sweet and charming. You would, Layla said. I finished my coffee, shook my head, and smoked another cigarette. I kept the ashes in my hand until I could dump them in the rose garden. I stooped to smell a rose and decided I wanted my ashes dispersed in a rose garden. Not this one, of course, and not until the time came. I imagined a sculpture garden of my work with roses bedded along the north wall. I wrote this idea out in my notebook with the date and time, something my therapist had suggested. I made a list of possible alternative ways to earn a living, and then tore out that page and crushed the paper into a ball. I threw the ball, but it didn't go far. It made me think of the cat. I miss Tommy most so very much, and imagined him pouncing on the ball. I stared at the ivy again. Hail, hogs, parades, floods, drones, collapsing stocks, snow days, sweltering days, scaffolding falling, pepper spray flying, and scrappy fights. The infamous and the famous and their wives, the ingenious and industrious and their husbands, stylists, designers, Academy Award winners, French stars, English royalty, fine artists, the literati and the literate, a baseball player, a heavyweight, women on tears and hormonal explosions, basement trysts, breakups and breakdowns, and still, Nothing, but nothing, interrupted the daily ebb and flow mania that preoccupied the precious worldly patrons of New York's Upper East Side tiny and tender spanking buttons. Not even the arrival of Tommy Moe, a tomcat of breathtaking splendor, whose green eyes glowed lynx-like, and whose cashmere coat evoked purring from anyone who pets him. Even the terrified Hasidic woman crossed a line of deeply held inherited dread, and dealt with the presence of a roving cat, as how could she forgo buttons? When he came to the door late on a snowy afternoon and stood on his hind legs, stretched his length, and tapped the door with the velvet pads of his manicured paws, I was the one who let him in. He'd run away or been shut out of somewhere posh. I named him Tommy Moe after an Olympian downhill racer, whose name had been all over the papers. Each day, alliances rose and fell between myself and Ivan, Grajina, Layla, Taylor, Abby, Daisy, and the five upstairs, plus Aaron, a.k.a. Buck, who floated between the two floors and also spent a lot of time in the basement. As a sideline, Aaron, a.k.a. Buck, surreptitiously produced X-rated films in the extra bedroom of his aunt's palatial Park Avenue apartment. He furtively conducted interviews in the musty button basement, which housed the multitudinous button supply in overstuffed cartons. Passions flew, and so did buttons. The proximity bred familial constellations and gestalt reactions. At night, I'm still subject to a recurring button dream where everyone, 
even long-gone Ivan, is gathered. There's no gravity, no ceilings, and we collide with each other and with buttons that hurl through space like falling stars, and everyone is older, yet the same. Nor have I forgotten the button customers, who live on in my mind like bizarre family members. They all had one, perhaps amongst several, but one trait indeed, and consistently in common. Attention to detail, the minuscule elements of appearance. This obsession led to a vocabulary chock-full of adverbs, obscenely, precisely, positively, revoltingly, chronically, cunningly, painfully, beautifully, profoundly, ornately, merely, timely, timelessly, perfectly, fittingly, seemingly, soulfully, instinctually, categorically, pricelessly, demurely, stylishly, endlessly. It was not possible to cast aside the use of adverbs in describing button-related hijinks. Some customers sat inside their limousines, staring longingly out the window. I recall their little faces, like a dog sitting under a glass table spread with cold cuts, achingly waiting for his or her turn. Others stood with their foreheads pressed against the shop window, aggressively tapping with frosted fingernails, trying to get our attention. In the winter, the crowd seemed more significant because of their fur coats' density. Minks, foxes, rabbits, ermines, lambs, chinchillas, raccoons, sables, opossums, monkeys, coyotes, lynx, and armanis, too crowded the sidewalk. When the tapping did not produce results, they pounded on the shop window and door, demanding entry, all before the opening hour had struck. They cursed us and said, What cows? And what sluts? And what impudence? And what attitude? And what a damn shame that such awful people worked at such a heavenly shop. The intensity of emotion which button customers brought to their shopping quest was unique and transcended cultural differences. I should have seen it coming, this thing with Grajana and Dr. Zine. The infamous mail-order customer, Dr. Zine, never ceased to agitate. Grajana, a Polish woman, spoke in a distinctive accent. She never said, I'm Polish. She preferred to say, I'm European. She punctuated the end of each day. Another day down to the drain. The click of her high heels turning on the tiled floor punctuated the time. I marveled at her deliciously vavavoom figure and platinum blonde crown. It had to be, in part, her stunningly salacious looks which incited Dr. Zine's head-on faint smack into her. But I believe that wasn't the whole story. I suspected they knew each other in Poland, and as children, had conspired or been enlisted to spy on neighbors. I knew they must have dark secrets. While rambling on and on, Grajina later disclosed this much in the garden, 
as the paramedics escorted her away. I understood, even if no one else did. The preferred account would remain that Dr. Zine fainted because the flesh and blood vision of Grajina, which, by the way, means grace in Polish, led to severe confoundedness, and all his buttons exploded. The first Zine correspondence arrived two years before the collision. Grajina was in charge of mail orders, so his letter fell into her hands. From the beginning, she had a fishy feeling. The letter read, The concerned. First and foremost, I require several, preferably all, of the enclosed buttons, a very dark blue, not navy, but a deeper hue. What to call it? Slate? No, perhaps midnight blue. These are buttons which I have purchased from you from time to time in a variety, or shall I say an array of colors, and which I employ upon my suits, sports jackets, trousers, and vests. I was last in your shop eight years ago. The button is exquisite, and I think it dramatically enhances my clothes' appearance. My wardrobe is entirely custom-made, which should give you an idea of how meticulous and individual I am. As must be apparent, I would like to order more of these buttons. Please note that I am a bachelor and depend upon the thoughtful attention and service of professionals. Thank you. Sincerely, P.J. Zine, M.D., F.A.C.S. His button needs were never met, never died precisely enough for his tastes. Grajina would go berserk each time she attempted to handle this case. Button customers were referred to as cases, to elevate our endeavors, and to assign language appropriate to the extremes of button-client behavior. I had my cases, and so did everyone else. Taylor, for example, had a hypersensitive sensitivity to smell. He could smell out a customer blocks away. Coco Chanel as the scent turned the corner. He could identify the brand and origin of the sausage Grajina had for lunch, the amount of garlic Layla ate for dinner, the choice of apple variety to be consumed for an afternoon snack while it was still in the bag. Taylor's case, then, was an odorous one, a countess who came to the shop and headed straight for him as if she knew and delighted in the damage she could wreak. Entering the front door with a great sigh, she maneuvered through the long, narrow room, blithely blowing everyone away. The countess suffered horribly from insurmountable gum disease. Consequently, her breath was evil, worse than death, than aged spam, than pirate spunk, than Swiss mold. Unimaginable. She whispered when she spoke, moving closer and closer, because Taylor kept saying, What? Because one couldn't hear her. She didn't stop until she had moved into his face and their noses touched. Please, can you help me? Ivan became overwhelmed with sadness on the days the countess visited, because she reminded him of the elephant man. He'd comb an imaginary few strands of hair on his shaved head and shout in a rasp precisely the way it was done in the film. I am not an animal. I am a human. 
Taylor, too, was a superb mimic. I remember my favorites. His renditions of the Night of the Living Dead monster. The checker at his grocery who couldn't get the computer to read the price. The owners, talented Burly Bear and Wee Money Mouse. The bosses rarely made an appearance downstairs, as they had an even more thoroughly imagined playpen upstairs, complete with a sunroom, a tea room, a turtle, and the rarest buttons on earth. Like neglectful parents and childlike themselves, they left us all alone below and played on above, so that Wonderland remained preserved for all. An appearance usually involved the mouse in a state of panic concerning a money matter. Does everyone know? Does everyone know that if the tax... How do you do it? She asked, holding the store calculator. Multiply by 8.25, Abby said. Right, she squeaked. Multiply by 8.25 and then, and then see if it says 0.49. Then you go over, over you go, and charge 50 cents. She'd hand over $100 to begin the day. All transactions were in cash, and each receipt handwritten. $10,000 a day was not unusual. Grajana was the counter of the monies. We know, Layla assured Wee Money Mouse about the tax calculations, and the mouse went back upstairs to the offices, relieved. I never calculated the tax accurately, though I labored over my receipts writing in my best script as if each one were a fourth-grade assignment. I never allowed the customers to rush me. Instructing me, out of the goodness in her heart, Grajana counseled, This is how you have to do if you want to have the money. Always thinking about the money. You have nothing because you don't think about the money. And you are Jewish, too. What is the point of being Jewish and not having any money? What is the point? I wondered, squinting at Grajana. Just then, a man swept in wearing a purple cape. Taylor helped him quickly find a button for his velvet trousers. He left Taylor his gold-embossed card that read, The Eleventh Earl of Atoll. Quick with witty retorts, Taylor called after him, Next time bring all the little atolls with you. I saved his card. I might have gotten into a debate about money and Jews with Grajana, but the Hasidic woman who was scared of cats arrived, and Grajana rushed to let her know that Tommy Moe had disappeared. Hasidic customers often came because of their many tailored outfit needs. Ivan ended up helping her as Grajana was called upstairs to polish the buttons. Ever curious and genuinely mystified, Ivan asked, do you mind if I ask you something personal? And don't get me wrong. I don't mean no disrespect, okay? I want to know what happens. Does a big truck pull up and the guy unloads a truckload of wigs? I mean, you all wear the same one. I think you'd want some variety. The woman answered matter-of-factly, Well, I got an excellent deal. I figured it's got to be something like that. I mean, you all can't like the same wig. Taylor answered the phone. No, no, we don't have zippers. Not one. I don't know. Try notions in a department store. Notions. 
notions. I'll spell it S-T-U-P-I-D. I went through the mail and discovered an overnight express letter had come for Grajna from Dr. Zine, which I was tempted to open or even throw it away. My motive was twofold. On the one hand, it was in deference to Grajna's duress, and on the other, once she received Zine directive, she was no use as a fellow employee. She became distracted and talked to herself, repeating, I have to take care of the zine bean. Also, she would get chills and shooting pains in her left shoulder. The truth was that everyone developed a plethora of spanking button-induced disorders. I wasn't the only one. What sort of lunacy did this express package contain? I decided not to mention its arrival. Here is the letter, which I read, but did not share. Dear Grajina, I recognize that you are trying to be helpful by sending me buttons that are similar, but not the same as the aforementioned desired buttons. I must make absolutely clear that, although I appreciate such effort on your part, I must ask you, however, to only send identical buttons, as all must match. I do not believe you understand how meticulous I am. I plan to travel to New York City with the sole purpose of determining where I can obtain this button, which, I must add once again, I originally bought from you. I regret my tone of frustration, but I am beside myself. Yours are Z. Dr. Zine arrived at 2.30 p.m., just as he had warned, though no one else, as yet, had read his letter. Grajana looked particularly ravishing, wearing her prized catsuit, a skin-tight, black, woven cotton wool blend, Sonyariki, Grajana's pronunciation, steel. She pranced about the store singing to Beethoven. And she had on her new shoes and matching bra and panties which she had revealed to me before the store opened that morning. I have the best under things, she said, and swiftly unzipped the catsuit, revealing her French undergarments. Look at the color. It's like blood. Look at mine, Ivan demanded. Unzipping his fly to a swash of mint and rust-checked boxers, which complemented his rust jacket, auburn and taupe-checked vest, Mossy green shirt, charcoal and rust striped slacks with matching socks, all Romeo Gili except the Versace tie. Ivan dressed to kill. Since being diagnosed with HIV, he wore what he wanted and spent every cent at Manhattan's trendy sample sales. I had worn the same leather pants from November through March. I'm waiting for those pants to get up and walk in on their own. Ivan mocked. The day was incredibly annoying. Overcrowded, understaffed, and stuffy. Adam, a.k.a. Buck, hurried toward me to report that I had company waiting out front. Blood rushed to my head. I made my way through the packed store, feeling as though I were squeezing out the rear window of my family station wagon. 
I smiled and did my best to assume a carefree manner as I chatted with my once boyfriend, complimenting him on his most recent film. We stood on the sidewalk on the corner, inches apart. I said his wife, too, did a great job, and then made excuses about being cold and having to get back to work. I let him kiss me goodbye, though I tried to pretend it had not happened. Still, the thrill left me bruised. I hoped some hidden paparazzi hadn't caught us. I felt euphoric for a few minutes, and then disgusted, and then despairing. I cut through the store and headed for the basement to compose myself. As I descended, Ivan opened the door to stop me. Baby Jane is here, and she needs you. Abby, premenstrual, stayed glued to the stool behind the desk. Taylor had been up all night, having ended another affair. This one involved a young man who lived with his mother and left at four in the morning, yelling, I can't leave my mother, not for you. Daisy was with the man in pink, a little-known designer of men's dress shirts, who arrived every few days in pale pink. Empathetic Daisy, with her peachy skin and strawberry hair, had a multitude of suitors among the customers and delivery boys. Unable to say no, but never able to say yes, meant Daisy was always in an emotional fix, letting down the button boys. When Dr. Zine arrived, Abby was in the middle of a heated argument with two blondes. Where are the Chanel buttons? We don't carry Chanel buttons. Only Chanel does. It is against the law. Can I find you something similar? We want Chanel. We don't have Chanel. You don't have Chanel? I think that's what I just said. We don't have Chanel. Back there. Do you have Chanel back there? No. You are so rude. I'm not rude. You're rude. You're insisting I repeat over and over that we do not have that button. You're yelling. Excuse me, you're yelling. Meanwhile, Taylor maneuvered through the throngs with his arms full of boxes to put away. As he frantically placed them on shelves and patted them into place, he routinely yelled over his shoulder, Madame, don't poke me. The prices are under the button or on the right side of the box. I was with Baby Jane, dubbed thus because, though pushing 60, she wore bobby socks, full skirts, wore her hair in a flip, and compared 10 to 20 small, cream-colored buttons for an inordinate length of time. She needed me to stand with her and tell her over and over what I thought. But do you think this cream is creamier? Which is the purest cream? Layla was clinching the sale of a $9,000 pair of cufflinks to the man in the fedora hat who always paid in cash and thought she looked like Audrey Hepburn. Stick it through the hole, Taylor enunciated every few moments, as if it were a taped announcement playing on a loop in response to the constant quandary. How do I know if it fits? Do you know how to put a spoon in your mouth? Ivan inquired in his queen's accent. Yes, the woman replied, continuing to look at him, baffled. Just stick it through the hole. It's as easy as sticking a spoon in your mouth.
Grajana was eating lunch at the rear of the store. As usual, she held the fork with her pinky in the air and talked to herself through the meal. I should bring my lunch. They don't know how to cook the lentils. In Europe, we have the best vegetables. They don't have the good dirt here. Ivan went into the bathroom. When Dr. Zine arrived, I watched him worm his way to the rear, as if drawn magnetically. At the precise moment that he found Grajana, who had just swallowed her last bite of lunch, the argument between Abby and the blonde women escalated, even for spanking button standards. Look, we do not have Chanel buttons. I've already told you ten times. Shall I tell you twenty? I noted that her enormous eyes had begun to twirl. She began to smile. I could hear her stomach gurgle. My girlfriend bought a Chanel button here. We do not have Chanel buttons. We do not have Chanel buttons. We do not have Chanel buttons. Ivan joined in from inside the toilet. We do not have Chanel buttons. Grajana had jumped up to come to Abby's aid. Dr. Zine stopped in his tracks upon the sight of Grajana. Mishki noshki progrishki trotschki. He cried out something evidently Polish, then turned white and fainted, collapsing head-on into Grajana. At that point, Abby's eyes were bulging, her arms stiff, and her fingers spread. Look, why would I lie to you? The two blondes extracted from their matching Gucci bags cans of mace and sprayed the contents as they ran out onto the street. Everyone else escaped through the back door into the garden, choking. Some customers climbed over the fence into the next-door oasis of tranquility and shade, owned by Seventh-day Adventists, and perhaps entered a new world. I might have followed them, but I didn't. I needed my own path to tomorrow. Taylor dragged Dr. Zine to the backyard. He was impeccably dressed, right down to his paisley handkerchief. Dr. Zine revived, but fainted again, when he looked into Grajana's eyes. Abby, pissed, took the landline outside and called her husband, screaming, What was I supposed to do? We don't have Chanel buttons! Every time anyone tried to enter the store, they'd back out coughing, their eyes wet and red-rimmed. Only Ivan did not succumb, which just depressed and worried him. He stood inside, yelling, I don't smell anything. Nothing is happening. What does this mean? Am I immune to mace? Is this part of the disease? Adam, a.k.a. Buck, gallantly dashed in to usher Ivan out. The upstairs population convened on the balcony and looked down upon the contagion. Talented burly bear kept repeating grumpily, Fuck! Wee Money Mouse launched into a remembrance. When I was a little girl, and my mother wouldn't give me a dime to go on the field trip, and I had to sit outside the principal's office. Everyone else went on the field trip because my mother wouldn't give me a dime. I had to sit all day by myself. I hated her, and then I hated her for feeling guilty because I hated, and 
Now I don't hate her. I don't hate her anymore. I understand. Is the cloud still there? Is the cloud in the store? Maybe it dispersed? Eventually it goes away. What were they wearing? We can't have Chanel buttons. Did you tell them we have fabulous buttons? More fabulous than Chanel? I looked up at the ivy, as I did every workday morning growing on the building abutting the store's backyard. Its lushness surprised me. I noticed how incredibly beautiful the vines appeared, an inch toward the building. I took hold of the ivy, feeling its cool, persuasive embrace shoot through my arms. I climbed up with ease and looked in the windows, and saw sad women wrapped in beautiful scarves, seated in front of mirrors all alone, as they fingered their buttons. I saw maids dressed as queens, sweeping the halls with their skirts. When I got to the top, I slipped and began to fall. I could hear Ivan and Grajina screaming. Without thinking, I spread my newfound wings and flew up and away. I went to the Taj Mahal and the Irish countryside, the south of France, and into the Nepalese mist. I flew into the world of my favorite button, the enamel one in the third glass case. The hills shimmered, the flowers blossomed, bluebirds circled above. I heard them singing, though the commotion in the backyard interrupted my reverie. Upon the policeman's entrance, everyone began talking at once and giving their versions of what the headlines called the Upper East Side Blonde Mace Attack. Of course, talented Burly Bear and Wee Money Mouse gave the final account. The policeman, Clark, was ushered upstairs by Ivan and served tea and truffles for his trouble, and tissues for his mace-induced tears. So it was that after an interlude, and with hesitant steps, everyone slowly re-entered the shop, first the customers, and then the staff. Grajina remained outside, and the lump on her forehead where she and Dr. Zine had bumped heads was sticking up like a little horn, and she kept repeating, I have to water the plants. I could hear Zine whispering to her and sense their invisible bonds. I hovered above the store behind a lovely cloud. Dr. Zine said something further in Polish or gibberish, whatever, ripped the buttons from his jacket, and threw them into the air. I caught one to keep as a souvenir. He dabbed his eyes with the paisley hanky and left. I flew out to the street, grabbed his arm as he exited, and asked how he knew Grajina. He motioned with his finger for quiet and whispered, We are both from the thousand lakes and never-ending forest of northern Poland. You may be born anywhere, even on an intercontinental train, but you always go back to the town of your childhood. Who am I, in truth? The wisest keep silent. I returned to the garden where Grajina sat slumped in the chair. She looked up at me without recognition. The mouse called the hospital, and the paramedics came and took her away. The mystery of Grajina consumed me. The customers adjusted without a pause. The question of how do you know if it fits 
rang throughout the store. Can you help me? I've just come from the eye doctor and my pupils are dilated. I can't see. You've got to help me. My driver is waiting. I have a frozen shoulder. Can you do it for me? I measured my button at home and it is 27 and 7 sixteenths. Where is that size? Can you do it for me? My nails are wet. Let me see your nails, I said. The customer displayed her nails, and I said, I think they're dry. And then I assured her so by putting one of her fingers in my mouth and touching the nail to a tooth. Withdrawing her finger, we both then inspected the nail. See? They're dry and perfect. You can do it yourself. And when she slipped the button through all by herself, I screamed. Perfect! I screamed and screamed. My glee was interrupted by an agitated brunette dressed in a long-haired black monkey fur, known as Lettuce Head, because of the green tint to her always disheveled mop of hair. Now can you help me? I'm looking for something chic and important. There are five buttons here, she said, indicating a diagonal line across her chest. I pivoted and went into the bathroom. I sat on the toilet and studied the poster on the door's back. The illustration pictured a man with a button in his mouth. It was Dr. Zine. I thought of Lily Bart from the House of Mirth and her last job at the millinery. I pictured Lily unable to sleep, taking her sleeping draft, still not falling asleep, and taking a little more, and too much more, dying alone in a small room just like mine, maybe a tad larger. I leapt to my feet. I can still feel the flush of energy that propelled me out of the toilet. Ivan called after me as I rushed past. Missy, you forgot something! I did not hear the sound of the toilet flushing. Even artists have to flush. Exiting the bathroom, I barreled into the backyard and regarded the ivy. I heard a plaintive meow and smiled. Tommy Moe? Tommy Moe, is that you? I lifted my sights, ready to slip through the hole and out. This story is copyright 2021 by Robin Luce Martin. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. 